Colossians 3, uh, verses 1, I'll just read verses 1 to 9, and then we will get started. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them or among them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, Blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Amen. Okay, so, again, I gave you a warning uh, about this being a deep dive, and I pray that uh, the Lord would uh, help us to draw much fruit out of this course, I left something at home. Okay, um, so again, we're going to have several quotes this morning, but our focus is going to be upon verse 5. Uh, Mortify, put to death, therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, before... This is the King James. Is that the... Well, this is New King James. Is mm. that much difference in mm. terms of terminology? Well, in some places, because these... Well, like a term like concupiscence is such an old word. Um, but I'm glad you asked that because I was about to ask you, not just you in general, but everyone. Um, so, so what you have there are five words, and we'll get into those, or five phrases. One, two, three, four, five... I'm assuming all your Bibles say covetousness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for the first, let's go to the first word in the list. Do all of your Bibles say fornication? Yep. Yep. Okay, what, what does yours say? Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, okay. So fornication is the word that I'll mainly be saying, but also sexual immorality is just a modernization kind of, um, of that term. But the Greek term... This is why I forgot, or not the reason, but I forgot my Greek New Testament. I meant to get it. But I'll tell you what it would look like if it was written in English. Pornea. Okay? All right, so that's the first word. Uh, the second one, King James says, uncleanness. Does anybody's Bible say anything besides uncleanness? Impurity. Impurity. Okay? Um, let me see. I think I have the word here in my notes. Uh, no. 
anyway, I, I don't have all the Greek terms for you. I'm sorry. I left my Greek New Testament. commentary because I want you to see these these terms because uh, they're all important and they all have a different uh, thing to uh, to teach us really and that's kind of going to be our lesson this morning um, but the first one again is pornea and the second one uh, uncleanness is uh, Hold on. I'm not going to look this long for it, I promise. All right, we'll just move on from that. But I do remember the next word. So uh, the next term in the King James is uh, inordinate affections. I imagine that most of your Bibles do not say that. What, uh, What does some of your translations say? Passion. Passion. Okay, that's a very straightforward take on the Greek word. Does anybody have anything else? Okay, the word is pathos, like pathology. Okay, um, and then uh, evil concupiscence. All right. The reason the word evil is important is because. Concupiscence is not always evil, and we'll get to that in a moment. Does it, what else does people's translation say? Evil desires. Desires, okay? I'll just write desires. All right. And uh, I'm not going to go digging through my notes to try to remember what that term is. I am so aggravated that I forgot that thing. Okay, so... There's your list. Those are our four terms. I didn't write covetousness because all your Bibles say covetousness. And I'm assuming they all say idolatry as well. So, speaking on the transition from Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Remember, that was what we covered last week, talking about our life being hidden with Christ and God. Davenant writes, okay, so we're, we're already on our first quote here. That former part, which is chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Your life is hid with Christ and God, being a summary directed us to seek the true end, meaning the ultimate goal of salvation in Christ, which is celestial blessedness, heavenly life. All right? Now this, verse 5 and following, directs us to enter upon the path which leads thereto, namely, true holiness. So, verses 1 to 4 calls us to set our minds on the heavenly life, which we can participate in in this life, but ultimately it's to come. And verse 5 and following, he's arguing, and I think he's right, otherwise I wouldn't be quoting him here, uh, is a call to the life that leads to that. Right? So the Bible where it says things like, without holiness no man shall see God. Right? This is the idea that's being talked about here. The need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. God requires of us sanctification. Yes, we do it by his grace, but it is the required path of the Christian. Right? This is why Jesus calls on us to judge people by their fruit, right? not judge people for unbiblical things. So let's move on to the next quote there. 
says the apostle exhorts the Colossians to the mortification of sin, which is the great hindrance to seeking the things which are above. So he moves from verses 1 to 4, set your minds on the things above, to this in verse 5 because it will cause things to be difficult for you in setting your mind on things above. Right? If you don't put to death the deeds of the flesh, it's going to be difficult for you to set your mind on things above. Indeed, impossible. And he says, since it is our duty to set our affections upon heavenly things, notice he calls it a duty, not an option for a Christian, because that's our duty. It is our duty to mortify, put to death, our members, we're going to get to that in a moment, which are upon the earth and which naturally incline us to the things of the world. And then he kind of gives a, a paraphrase with an expansion on the verse. He says, mortify them, that is, actually this is Matthew Henry, I'm sorry. Mortify them, that is, subdue the vicious habits of mind which prevailed in your Gentile state. Kill them, suppress them, as you do weeds or vermin which spread and destroy all about them, or as you kill an enemy who fights against you and wounds you. Okay? So that's just kind of a general idea that Paul is moving from. This is heavenly life, verses 1 to 4. This is where you're supposed to direct yourself. Now in verse 5, these things are going to be obstacles for you in that. All right? And you don't just count them as obstacles. You're called to put them to death. Romans 8 has very stark language about this, that if you do not put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will die. And the implication there is not that you will die in the body, it is that you will die in the soul and therefore prove to be none of Christ's, okay? So let's talk about, in categories, what this list is. I'll write um, idolatry or covetousness here at the bottom, but covetousness is kind of a uh, summary term for all of them. So in the first two, you have something that marks them in common, and in the second two, you have something that marks them in common. And Davenant says, I think I put this on your handout, the first two are carnal vices. Carnal vices, which immediately respect our peculiar but unlawful desires. I don't know if I put that in your notes or not. But what his point is, is that these two, in a sense, they're desires, but they're mainly actions. All right? And we're going to focus on these as, I forget what, you know, you have desires here. This second pair ultimately produces the first pair, right? And we're going to get to that, and I'll explain it. But Paul is calling on them to stop these certain types of actions, that fornication will distract you from setting your mind on things above, that uncleanness will distract you from setting your mind on things above. All right, so the first two are carnal vices, actions, sinful behaviors. The second thing he calls them to mortify are spiritual vices. And what he means by spiritual there is invisible, basically, right? Things that you can't put your finger on, but you know are there. They operate at the level of the heart and the soul, all right? And he says these tend immediately to uh, the injury of our neighbor. Anyway, all right, so uh, the next quote is a short one. Uh, he says, Our participation with Christ in dying, rising again, and ascending, which is part of what Paul covered in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, is the strongest inducement to newness of life 
and holiness. Now, why do I bring that up? Because you need to really think about this. Because one of the hardest things about being a Christian is living as a Christian. All right? It's one thing to go through the motions, to come to church on Sunday, and live a decent life. But the Bible does not call on us to live a decent life. The Bible calls on us to mortify our members that are on the earth. That includes actions, outward, and inward things. We're going to get to that. But uh, Davenant argues that our participation with Christ, like knowing what is true of us in Christ, is the greatest thing that will compel you to live a life of holiness. Okay? All right. Now, of course, the law comes in there. Right? We're commanded to live a certain way. But it is true, nonetheless, I, I, I know this from experience, and I trust you do as well, that in those seasons where you really grasp what Christ has done for you are the seasons that you are most devoted to living a holy life. Right? And that's what Davin is arguing. When that is focused in your life, you have the strongest inducement. You have the greatest uh, power surge into you. Okay, so what is mortification? All right, and this is on your outline as well. Uh, Here's his definition. I, I appreciate the way he does it. He says, it's making the body of the old Adam as a dead carcass. So putting it to death, right? Because remember, we are born in Adam, but we're made alive again through Christ. But that old man still remains. That, that putting to death of the old Adam as a dead carcass, so that although it may retain certain members and lineaments, just things in your life, yet they are inefficacious being destitute of life and motion. That is, he quotes Romans 6, 12, let not sin reign in your mortal body, because it's going to try to. Sin is going to try to reign in your body, but do not let it reign, do not let it have sway, do not let it have power, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. You see, it is already the case in Christ, as he's been uh, arguing, like look at verse 20, if you're dead with Christ, chapter 2, verse 20, If you're dead with Christ, Paul's been arguing this. It is already the case that we are dead to all these things. But it is also our obligation to continue putting them to death. The verdict has already been rendered. The New Testament over and over again speaks of not only our sin being defeated, but the devil himself at the cross. The verdict has already been rendered, yet... In the Lord's wisdom, as I quoted to you last week from Edward Lee, the Lord allows sin to remain in us to draw out of us a greater need for Christ. And we are bound to work out what God has worked in. So sometimes you're wondering, why do I still have to fight with sin? Well, one argument is, in the Lord's wisdom, that fight with sin in this life causes you to call on Christ, whereas if all that sin was removed, you would just be kind of in a holding period until you died, having no great need for him. 
Uh, Origen, early church father, gives a definition of, or an explanation of mortification. That's on your outline as well. He says the mortification of sin is not effected in a moment. So you don't have total power over this. You have to fight it. But is the work of an unceasing struggle. You will never reach a point in life where you don't have to struggle with sin. He says sin languishes because it's been defeated from the commencement of our mortification, meaning from the time we come to know Christ. It wastes away in the progress. And at last, that is in our death, it shall be abolished. All right, does anybody have any questions on the word mortification or mortify before I move on to uh, members? What are your members? In summary, I would just remind you that this is not a suggestion. This is a command. We are commanded in Scripture to mortify, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, or as Paul says here in Colossians 3, 5, to mortify our members that are upon the earth. Nice. Still hot. Okay. Um, so what are our members? Here's another long quote, but I'm drawing this from verse 5. Does any of your translation use a word besides members? No? Good. Yeah, what is earthly in you? Say it again. It doesn't say members. It just says what's earthly in you. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. It's very it's very paraphrastic, but it, it conveys the idea nonetheless. It puts a footnote. Yeah. It's not the problem. Yeah. It puts a footnote down there saying members. Okay. There you go. All right. So mortify your members or the things that are earthly in you would be a, a looser translation. But what are those members? What are those things that are remaining in you? Here's another quote. It says, he calls then all vicious and inordinate dispositions, desires, motions, and acts of corrupt nature. For all these are to be mortified by us, that is, opposed, subdued, and repressed. The primary members of this, our corrupt nature, are three. The darkness and vanity of the intellect, right? So sin affects the way that we think, our intellect. It affects our intelligence, our ability to grasp things. The depravity and obliquity of the will. I gave you a definition of obliquity down there. Uh, think of like an oblique triangle. Right? Uh, deviation from moral rectitude or sound thinking. So the depravity and the obliquity of the will, but also the rebellion of the inferior appetites and their proneness to sin. Right? So sin affects your thinking, sin affects your will, and sin affects your appetites, is what he's getting at here. And the words that Paul chooses call on us to mortify all of those things. The sinful inclinations in our intellect, the sinful inclinations in our will, the sinful inclinations in our appetites. He says, to these are allied innumerable inferior members, meaning other things that Paul doesn't say, and which, as it were, depend upon them. Some of these are soon after subjoined in this place and more occur 
in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. He's saying he gives a longer list in Galatians 5. Where the name being changed, they are called the works of the flesh. And then again, there's your definition of obliquity. I think I put it on there for you. Deviation from moral rectitude, which is sound thinking. Think of like an oblique triangle. All right. So our members are these internal things. Yes, they lead to external actions, but sin affects our intellect, our will, and our sin. I mean, excuse me, our appetites. That's so important to grasp, to understand what Paul is saying. And we're going to dive a little more into each of these terms. But your sinfulness. Now, you you need to make this distinction, and I'll try to do it as we go. But there are things in your, your life, in your experience, in your appetites, in your desires that you do not choose that simply flow from the fact that you are a sinner. Those things are sinful. Even if you don't act upon them, even if you put them to death, they are sinful even though you commit no sin with them. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'll use a, a, straight, uh, a far out there example and then try to bring it back home. This comes up when you talk to a lot of Christians about homosexual desire. All right? Homosexual desire exists because people are sinners. If you put to death homosexual desire, you did not sin based on that desire, but that desire is sinful. All right? Covetousness is another good example. Like a little more practical that I hope all of us can relate to this, or I know all of us can relate to this, even if we can't relate to the former. Covetousness is a sinful desire. You can put it to death and not act upon it and not sin based on that desire, but the desire itself is sinful and must be put to death. You see what I'm saying? Sinful desires, even though not sin in themselves, they're not an act, because you don't choose them, they're still to be put to death, is what Paul is driving at. All right, so they are termed members because they are part of our old nature. They latch hold of the members of our new nature, right? So think of one man and then think of another, and it's kind of, I mean this very loosely, it's like we have two men, two people living within us, and those things that exist in the old person try to come over into the new person. And you can see how that infection kind of occurs. But here's a quote. It says, For as we use the members of this natural body to fulfill the desires and perform the operations of nature... So the old man uses those vicious affections as instruments for fulfilling the desires and performing the works of sin. All right? And he's talking about the fact that even our natural desires that may not be sinful are affected by the fact that we are fallen. And our old sinful man that has been put to death in Christ 
still struggles with those things. Now, let me say this, because this is not something that gets talked about a lot. I try to do it when we do, when I lead us in a confession of sin or in my prayers. Uh, you are responsible, must confess, and must seek to put to death even original sin. Even that which is yours simply by being a descendant of Adam. Okay? It is true that that is what Paul is telling you, to put to death original sin, even those things which you do not consciously choose. Whatever they may be, if they are sinful desires, they proceed from the fact that you have a sinful nature. And Davenant quotes Aquinas, and he says this. I think I gave you this as well. He says, we must assert... That as bodily sickness partly consists in privation, meaning deprived of health, as far as the equality of health, not heath, is taken away, and partly in positive infliction, the humors themselves being disordered. So we're sick because our body lacks health, but we're also sick because our body is being attacked, right? That's, that's how illness works, but he's drawing it towards an explanation of sin. So also, original sin consists in the privation of original righteousness. You're born with sin already in you. You are born as a sinner. David says, I'm sinful from my mother's womb. And because of that, you're in a state of privation or you are deprived of original righteousness like Adam had before he sinned. And together with this, in the disorder of the faculties of the soul. Wherefore, it is not a mere privation, but a certain corrupt habit. Now, that's an important distinction. It is one that uh, most Roman Catholics, indeed, it is their teaching on paper uh, that um, things like concupiscence and certain things attached to original sin are not sin, properly speaking that they're not to be confessed or repented of because you didn't do anything with them. But the Protestant position, and ironically, Aquinas' position, who is a supreme doctor in the Roman Catholic Church, says that original sin consists not only in the loss of original righteousness because of Adam's sin, but also in the disorder that comes from it, the certain corrupt habit or actions that flow from it. Now, I say that this is the Protestant position. This is taken up, and I gave you this as well, in the confession, our Confession of Faith, chapter 6, paragraphs 4 and 5. From this original, oh my gosh, I've got to hurry up. <clears throat> From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly disposed, so from original sin, by it, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and from that does proceed all actual transgressions. So what they're saying, and I'll read the next paragraph in just a second, is all of your sin flows from the fact that you have original sin. You don't become a sinner in that sense, in this life. You are born a sinner and all of your sinful actions flow from the fact that you inherited this corruption from your first father, Adam. 
You are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, wholly inclined to all evil. Let me say uh, the next paragraph. I gave you that as well. This corruption of nature, this original sin, and all transgressions that proceed from it, during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated. So we still have original sin. And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, what we've been talking about, it's already true, yet both itself, original sin, and all the motions thereof, all the things that proceed from it, are truly and properly sin. All right? That's not a philosopher I'm quoting. I'm not quoting you some obscure person. This is the Westminster Confession explaining the relationship between original sin and actual sin. Right. Now, why is this so important to grasp for Paul's point is because you're not just mortifying the fruit that comes from original sin. You're mortifying all the way to the root. We're called to put to death the deeds of the flesh, not just the actions of the body. We're called to, by the power of Christ, submit our lives all the way in, all the way down, and allow him and work with him to wage war, not just on the fruit, but on the roots. Now, to the list in verse 5. Davina says they are, one, I said external actions. All right. I think I put this on your handout. The first is they are external actions, for to these I refer fornication and uncleanness. And second, internal motions. All right, so I'll write external actions. This is in your handout, but if you want to look up here, that's part two. Internal motions. All right. Now, again, uh, don't be bothered by me using this guy Davenant so much, because you see, as I quoted from the confession, he is simply extrapolating on what is written in our Westminster Confession. Right. He was a somewhat of a contemporary of it. All right, so the first, uh, the inordinate affections, right there under number two, the internal motion, excuse me, and affections, which that word pathos rendered inordinate affections denotes, and then three, the very root or fountain of external and internal lust, which he calls evil concupiscence. So let's start defining these terms. The first definition I give you on fornication, the first term, which some of your Bibles say sexual immorality, but the Greek word is porneia. That definition comes from Augustine. Davenant actually quotes Augustine here. Uh, it is indiscriminate concubinage. Unrestrained by lawful wedlock and sought only for the gratification of lust. Now, let's make that a little more straightforward. You can just really focus on the second two phrases. Unrestrained by lawful wedlock. So, actions that come because you are not in a lawful marriage is fornication, right? But also, 
And this is something that's pointed out in older explanations of marriage in general, is when this type of lust is, or when this type of desire is sought for only as a gratification of lust. And that means things like whenever you're getting married, I don't have to say one of the reasons that people get married, but it's not to gratify beastly, unbridled desires. All right? Because that is a type of fornication. You can, in a way, participate in a type of fornication even when you're married because of the corruption of those desires. All right? And what is uncleanness? According to Davenant, all the more filthy kinds of lust, as adultery, incest, rape, and especially those sins of excess, which even nature herself abhors. Therefore, they who not only wallow in one kind of lust, but in different kinds, and those the most foul, are called the unclean. And what he's arguing there is that this is worse than this. All right? The fornication is like step one, and uncleanness is like step two. All right? So fornication is one level, but if it is uh, you know, left free to reign, as it were, it will lead to even more uncleannesses. And remember, he counts these two primarily as actions, the second proceeding from the first. Now, the third term, inordinate affection. This is really cool, uh, what he does here. Um, pathos is the term. All right? Um, I'm just going to read through the quote and offer some comments on it. He says that some translate this effeminacy, right? Effeminate, right? Some translate this term pathos as effeminacy, and others translate it as lust, but he's quoting from uh, the King James, which says uh, inordinate affections or inordinate desires. The apostle teaches that after all the external acts of lust have been repressed, all fornication and all uncleanness, right? After all those things have been mortified, the external fruits, the internal motion itself and the unbridled passion must be restrained. The must be restrained, uh, restrained, yes. So it is this, right? These inordinate desires that lead to fornication, that lead to uncleanness. So we're not just called on to put to death actions, but to put to death desires. Pathos, then, denotes that disposition of the mind whereby anyone is fitted and ready for the sin of lust when any occasion is offered. I'm sure you can relate to this in certain ways where you have had a season in your life where sin was so prevalent that all you could think about was that sin, and you had the action kind of sort of beat, but the desire is still there, raging, and when an opportunity presents itself, boom, right? You just leap onto it. Those inordinate desires just go crazy. You know, kind of like, you know, when you're 
raising a child. And it seems like no matter, like these certain circumstances when they're put in, they can't help themselves. Right? Those inordinate desires. And he says, because this vice arises from the effeminacy of a mind unwilling to sustain the attack, even of the least temptation, therefore some not improperly render pathos effeminacy. For they are justly deemed effeminate, whose minds do not resist the temptations of the flesh, but willingly and immediately yield themselves to the bonds of lust, even as Samson yielded himself up to be bound by Delilah. What an imagery, or what an image. We think of effeminate as a man who acts like a woman, and there's truth to that. But effeminacy in the heart begins with those who, even women, are unwilling to sustain the attack even of the least temptation. They always give way under temptation. And because of this, he argues that those who want to render this term effeminacy are not wrong in doing so. All right. Now, evil concupiscence. It denotes the first motion of inordinate desire, which is called evil to distinguish it from natural and spiritual concupiscence. Now, if I'm understanding him, he's going even a level deeper. Right? The things that lead to these passions are also to be put to death, right? which are things that we don't ask for. Right? Those internal inclinations that would lead us to fornication and uncleanness. It is the first motion. Right? So imagine like a chain right? where you've got all these different uh, links together, right? And Paul is linking us all the way back to the very first one, original sin, and then concupiscence, inordinate affections, fornication, and uncleanness. Okay? That's the way these things have traditionally been explained, and anyone in this era who took the time to explain them would explain them in a similar fashion. This is not uh, squabbling over words. You see, it's true that things can be sinful even if we do not will or choose them. Concupiscence is that internal, initial motion of the heart or the soul. In Christ, our concupiscence is renewed and we are given a spiritual inclination, or we might call it a spiritual concupiscence, where our desires are being renewed even to the root. In Galatians 5.17 it says, The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Right. So the spirit has been given to us and is making war in the flesh, which is the Galatian word for our members on the earth. All right. Does anybody have any questions about this 
this list here before I get into covetousness for just a moment. I know it's hard to grasp, so seriously, if you have any questions, I'll do my best to try to work it out. Okay, assuming y'all could all write a paper on this now. <laughs> so, word is temptation. So, the word temptation is kind of binds up, I think, across a couple of goes across a couple of these lines. And am I wrong or right on that? No, you're right, but the temptation here that would be in view would be internal, not external. Because Paul's dealing with them within their own person. Yes, external temptation would be you know, implied because you're going to be externally tempted to these. right? But internally, is what he's dealing with, right? Because there's a type of internal temptation, right? This evil concupiscence, these evil desires. Even if we never act on them, they are temptations that didn't come externally. It came internally as a fruit of our original sin, right? External temptation, you know, you're watching something and it shows people fornicating or you're uh, thinking about a previous life, external temptations in that way. But he's dealing primarily with internal. We're called not to mortify what other people do, but what we do, all the way down to the root. Yes? That, listening to this takes me back to some other teaching I heard in the past. Paul referring to carrying the dead man. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the description of how on your back rotting corpse that's dead and dying. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Certainly through Christ that has occurred, but yet when I when I listen to what you're presenting here, it does bring me back to that man is not fully dead. He may be corrupt, he may be rotting, but he's still, because of original sin, mm -hmm. internally, he's, he's not fully mortified. I guess that's what I'm saying. Right. Some of that teaching I listened to has led me to believe. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, on the one sense he is, but on the other sense he's not. Yes. Right. Am I being confusing on that? No, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, one of the things that that Davenant uses to explain it, he calls it a that we have experienced a sacramental death. That because of our being united to Christ in baptism, receiving Him in the sacraments, and knowing Him by faith that that death has already occurred in us. Therefore, we are ascended into heaven with Christ. Right, right. But the full outworking of death, similar to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? When you eat this fruit, you will die. Well, did they die? No, they began to die, right? Um, and it ultimately ended up with the wages of sin is death. All right, so in a similar fashion here, that old man is dead. It has no uh, authority over us. It has been defeated, but there is still remaining corruption and power that it is able to exert. Right? Yes? This is why I objected so strongly to the words in Alicia's proposed confession. Uh -huh. The book church order changed about 
speaking of the remaining indwelling aspects and ministers using the word imperfection. Sure. This was not just an issue. This was an issue that be, it was very prominent, even among the Westminster Divines. I'm not necessarily debated in the assembly. But there was a rise in antinomian, and there were actually about a half dozen man, highly, also antinomian t tending sure. divines. Mm -hmm. And then the antinomian tendency is to speak, uh, fully admit the first fact that was a lack of original righteousness, but to downplay in, in those that were saved. The indwelling and continual. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's, that's not just something, that, but I see that what bothers me today is even in the reformed circles, this tendency towards, which I saw in that, I saw actually in my, why they chose this word imperfections. Mm -hmm. We let come into our, into our thought this, this idea that, that these are, and that's, well, these are just imperfections. I'm exaggerating. I got you. Yeah, yeah. But they, oh, these are just imperfections. No, they're not. Even the way we are saved, that indwelling sin is still that original sin. We like Lee was talking about. We carry it around like a dead man, mm -hmm. and, and that, that's what. Yeah. I, I, anyway, I said enough. No, I, I mean this is a big theological issue that is that that we just kind of gloss over today. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and uh, cited by the very example I give you. Okay, mm -hmm. where how can we let that go? No, this I, is really true. How can we stay in a room and allow this to be spoken of as simply imperfections? Mm -hmm. They're not imperfections. They're sin. Yeah. And, and that's what, anyway. No, I mean, you're right. Um, technically and theologically, this statement was a mess. Yeah. But it had a political aim. I, right. And, right. you know, when you're doing that, things get muddy. Uh, yes. So, um, you, you have, before I get to covetousness, I want to try to draw this circle as tight as I can so you can leave with at least some level of understanding because I know this is a lot. But you have to understand that that your sin is not just an outward action. It proceed, it comes from internal motions and crooked desires. And your reliance on Christ needs to uh, go all the way down to your desires, right? Uh, this is why, I, I think y'all told me a story before, Sean and Tasha, about a pastor who told you that he was at home all day, one day by himself, listening to, to worship music or whatever and reading the Bible, and he, he joked around saying, I'm not even sure that I sinned that day, right? Just what a profound misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches about sin. But when you sin against someone... It's not because you were forced to do it externally. And this is where James talks about temptation in James chapter 1. It is because you have evil desires, you have corrupt passions, inordinate, crooked affections that can be preyed upon. And you have to put even those to death. Right? Paul doesn't say, do this or that. He lists them all together. Because they are all actually sin, right? They can be qualified as sin or sinful in different senses. But we must depend on the Lord to that level, and we also must repent of our own sin to that level, right? So when you sin against your, your family member, your friend, your spouse, your co-worker, it's because you have that remaining corruption. You didn't just do something bad. Oops, 
No. Your affections were out of order. Your desires were crooked because you are a sinner. Because you're not putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And again, we can't do this fully or perfectly in this life. But we are called to pursue it as if we could. We're called to be perfect even as our Heavenly Father in Heaven as our Father in Heaven is perfect, knowing that we cannot fully accomplish it, but God sets this out for us as our requirement. Who will rescue me from this? Yes. This, this, uh, this bucket of death. Of, yeah. Of, you, know, Christ, you know, Paul goes, that's in... Uh, Romans 7. Romans. 7. I mean, you look, I'd like to do that. It's nice. I want to do it, but I don't do it. Yeah. That's even Paul's. Who's gonna Who's gonna rescue me? Mm-hmm. I mean, you aren't going to get away from it. Yeah. Well, well, you are in Christ. It's, you're seen, right? You're seen as by God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and <clears throat> tough, tough enough. yeah. When you read Colossians three and passages like it, and then you read Romans seven, you can begin to understand why Paul is not just throwing terms away. By saying, that which I desire to do, I don't do. And that which I don't desire to do, I find myself doing. Right? That our desires are corrupt. Our passions, our affections are corrupt. And it leads to those things. But we have to put to death all of them in order to live this life that God has given us, promised to us, and required of us in Christ. So quickly, why the inclusion of covetousness, which is idolatry? Davenant says Paul includes covetousness, quote, because it is of a middle kind. It is between carnal and spiritual sins. Those vices are properly designated carnal, which have a sensible delight in a sensible object, as we see in the sins of gluttony and luxury, right? So you desire those things which you see. Those are properly designated spiritual, which seek spiritual delight amid spiritual objects such as pride about personal excellence. He's using spiritual there, not Holy Spirit, but in an invisible sense. Like you can't touch pride, right? But you can touch things that uh, cause you to be gluttonous and seek overly luxurious things. Now, covetousness occupies a middle place. It is carnal in respect to the object, so it is based on something that is outward, because it seeks delight in external and corporal things, but it is spiritual in respect to the delight itself, because a covetous man hath delight only in this, that he possesses riches. Um, I don't have a whole lot of time to unpack that, but he quotes Aquinas to prove how covetousness is idolatry. It is idolatry, not in kind, meaning uh, the covetous man does not intend to regard his money to account it as a god. Right? He doesn't formally worship money, but in similitude, meaning in his heart, in his actions, because he pays to it, not is, supreme obedience. Right? So covetousness, uh, covetousness is idolatry because that which we are coveting, we pay that thing a supreme obedience right so even if you can't relate to i pray that you can't relate to fornication 
and uncleanness, though I know it's a temptation for everyone in some way. But you can relate to covetousness. And God himself calls it idolatry. Those things that you are willing to pay supreme obedience to that are not God. He calls covetousness, and we're called to even put this to death. Another writer, I have no idea who this is, but Davenant quoted him named, I want to say Alice. I know that's not Ailes, though that would be a cool name. Uh, He quotes saying, A covetous man is called an idolater because as an idolater, man, I got some typos. As an idolater behaves to an idol, so in a similar manner does a covetous man to his money. And Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we'll get to the next few verses. But the following verses show the consequences of such sin. Because notice that Paul says in verse 6, For which things sake, yes, even inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, even covetousness, and we might say especially fornication and uncleanness. Verse 6 says, For which things sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And he sounds like Ephesians 2 here, doesn't he? In the which you also walked some time when you lived in them. The following verses show the consequences of such sin as an additional motivation to mortify them. So the first motivation was in verses 1 to 4, because you've been risen with Christ. The second motivation here is, quite frankly, fear. Right? Because the wrath of God comes on people for these things, so you should put them to death. This connects us back to, again, the beginning of the chapter where Paul lays the initial groundwork for the Christian to seek the things above where Christ is, where our life is hidden with him in God. Any final quick questions, comments? We have a lot of repenting to do. that uh, you would enable us by your spirit to do the things that you call us to do. Namely, this morning we consider mortifying our members which are upon the earth. And we notice that Paul does not put any 
in a special class, but Christ himself. We are all called to this. Uh, Every Christian who has ever lived or will ever live will deal with these uh, temptations to fornication and uncleanness that come from within. These inordinate affections, evil concupiscence, desires, and certainly covetousness, which is idolatry. God, have mercy upon us, strengthen us for this fight, knowing that we wage war as those who are already on the side of the victor, Christ himself. Prepare us for worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.